Hundreds more landing, hundreds more turn back. This is a, a cruel and, and inhumane uh, practice that, that needs to stop. Sponsors needed. To help and see that the kids uh, can have with their mothers. South Florida steps up so migrants can stay. These individuals are going to be given work authorization, obviously, along with their ability to enter the United States lawfully. Hello. From the shore to the schools. We are a school district that adds a lot of value to this community. Absorbing incoming children, the predictions and the plan. The big news of the week and the newsmakers live this week in South Florida. Good morning, I'm Glenna Milberg. Stay in, stay warm. We have a packed hour ahead. The scope and effects of South Florida's migrant surge. Coast Guard by air and by sea patrolling the Florida Straits. Almost a thousand people repatriated this week. The vast majority to Cuba and also 83 people to Haiti. You may know someone who's been aboard a cruise ship witnessing these kind of rescues. The latest was Friday when the Liberty of the Seas rescued a group of people who had left Cuba's coast on that small boat. As new rules take hold for those who can stay and those who must go, so do questions about whether that will slow the crisis numbers of desperate people making a dangerous sea voyage. And we have those on the front lines with us today. We begin with Coast Guard Admiral Brendan McPherson, commander of the Coast Guard District 7, headquartered in Miami and at the helm of this week's search and rescue at sea. Admiral, great to have you here today. Good morning, Glenn. I'm glad to be with you. So you absolutely are at the tip of a spear of a massive and multi-layered first responder project for this. You were with us in October. I went back. I looked at our conversation in October. And then you said this was not a crisis yet. Fast forward now to January. Would you consider this a crisis now? No, Glenn, I wouldn't. And the reason why is because we have a plan. As I told you back then, Operation Vigilant Century is the Department of Homeland Security plan to deter and prevent a mass migration. And certainly, as we've seen, the numbers of migrants uh, take to the sea has uh, gone up and increased. Uh, we are bringing all of our resources to bear within the Department of Homeland Security and with our local and state partners. So that's something that you do and have been doing. And this week, the rules changed. And I want to get a sense of what the effect has been on the Coast Guard, if any. But right now, uh, just to, to brief, make sure we are all on the same page, we have viewers from Boca to Key West. So just to bring everybody on board, the, this is really the first week of your operations under this change in the president's plan for migrants, which summarily expels everybody who comes, uh, what the plan says is, across the border in, in any other way than legal. And, and also provides a lot more of an opportunity for Cubans and Haitians and Nicaraguans and Venezuelans to have opportunities to apply for parole, 30,000 a month. My question to you is, that plan specifically says across the border, I'm not sure we've gotten a definitive answer if the plan applies to the sea border, to sea crossings. Can, can you address that? Yeah, I can, Glenn, and it does apply to people that would come unlawfully from the sea and cross the border. Um, so, you know, since the last time we talked, you're right, a lot has changed. And, and most significantly, that announcement made by the administration on January 5th. It provides legal pathways for people to enter the United States. You know, safe, 
orderly, humane, and legal pathways are really what we're looking to have here. Um, what hasn't changed is that these illegal maritime voyages are dangerous. They're often, they're always dangerous and they're often deadly. You know, last year we know of at least 65 migrants that lost their lives at sea, and it's probably many more that we don't even know about. And so far this year, we've had 13 lives lost. And as I come to you today, I heard you talk about the cruise ship that rescued those 17 migrants at sea. So as a, as a result of some interviews we made and an additional vessel that was found swamped, we're actually conducting a search and rescue operation right now off the Bahamas, supporting the Royal Bahamian Defense Force, looking for as many as 22 migrants that may be in the water. And was so that for everybody intel? that's- I'm sorry to interrupt, I just wanna, is that yeah. intel that you received? How, did, how do you know? How did you know to go do that search? Yeah, we got information from the cruise ship, the Liberty of the Seas, uh, who had talked to some of the migrants. They said they were with another vessel, and we found another vessel nearby that was swamped. So until we know better, we're gonna search. I hope I'm wrong. I hope, I hope nobody is in the water. But as you, as you can tell today, 41 degrees, heavy seas, high winds, uh, it's a tremendously dangerous situation. So we're hoping for the best, but we're gonna, but we're gonna search until we know for sure. Yeah, um, absolutely. And we see even in summer, I remember in the summer in the 1990s, 94, the, the summer crossings, obviously not cold, but brutal heat and dehydration. And, and so part of the plan was to get exactly that kind of message out to people to not get on those boats this week. Is there any indication yet that that message might be working? Yeah, we hope so, Glenna. Um, I mean, we'll have to see. And, uh, you know, what we're focused on right now is saving lives and securing the border. First and foremost, this is a humanitarian mission for the Coast Guard and everybody in the task force. You know, from the governor of Florida to the administration to myself and all my colleagues, we want to save lives, prevent that loss of life. And uh, this new policy allows for some additional legal pathways for Cubans, Haitians, and a few others. Right. And so, and we will, um, we've been reporting on that. We will absolutely get into much more of that during this hour. Um, I, I want to sort of get a, a firsthand behind the scenes look at the process on board those cutters because really what hasn't changed is any migrant has the right to request asylum. Um, and does that happen on board the cutter? Take us kind of through when, when the crew on the cutter rescues people from the middle of the ocean. What happens then? Take us step by step, depending, I, I suppose, on what they say, right, and what, what they do, but what, what is the responsibility from there? It has become a nonstop every day. Yeah, exactly. So first and foremost, our goal is to remove them from that dangerous situation, right, to actually rescue them from those unseaworthy and, and overloaded vessels. Once they get on board, our, second, our next priority is to make sure that they're safe. So we provide them humanitarian care with dignity and respect, give them blankets, food, medical attention. And then if they have uh, a manifestation of fear, if they expressed any fear of being returned, uh, we have a process in place with our partners from U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, another component within Department of Homeland Security. Well, they will conduct an interview. Those interviews are not conducted by the Coast Guard. They're conducted by USCIS trained professionals. They're either done on board face-to-face -face, or they can be done uh, by satellite phone. And, and then a determination is made by USCIS, whether they are amenable to return as part of the repatriation. The vast majority uh, do get repatriated. And as you indicated at the top of the hour there, um, almost, uh, almost a thousand, over 900 were repatriated just in the last week.
So they know prior to getting off the cutter that had rescued them, they know whether they're staying or going. Well, once they get on board, uh, again, we'll, we'll give them all their care and feeding, and then they, we will let them know once a determination is made. Uh, if they get an interview, if they meet the threshold for, for a credible peer interview, uh, based on their reports or what we observe, uh, then they'll be told and, and they'll be given the opportunity. Um, so those who don't meet the threshold uh, will get repatriated and we tell them that and, and we support them through that. Um, those who do have a potential credible fear can be brought voluntarily to Guantanamo uh, Navy Base where there is a maritime operations center. And this is where USCIS will continue to adjudicate that case, determine if there's a well-founded fear. And if there's a well-founded fear, the policy there is they'll look for a third country for those migrants to settle. Hmm. So, Admiral, on Thursday, we saw a boat come in, an overloaded boat, a, a sailboat, actually, rather a larger right. vessel than we've been seeing um, in those the videos so far today. Um, Haitians, dozens, I'm not sure of the number, but an overcrowded boat came into Virginia Key Beach. And last reports, apparently this was a smuggling operation. I wonder if you would weigh in on the minute or so that we have left on, on if that is a growing problem or possibly a decreasing problem now that there's a messaging out that there will no longer be sort of what a lot of people call an open border. Um, smuggling kind of kicks it up to a whole other level of crime. What are you seeing on that front? Yeah, great question, uh, Glenna. So let me tell you something about the smuggling organizations. First of all, uh, they don't care about the welfare of the people that they're smuggling. Uh, we've seen cases where they were literally dumped them into the water offshore uh, to evade uh, detection and capture. The other thing is they're going to exploit those people for their money uh, and their families. Um, and, and so it is a significant concern of ours. We work with Homeland Security Investigations, Customs and Border Protection, and many other agencies to target those organizations and try and dismantle them. The problem is they will exploit. They will exploit family members here. Who, who are sympathetic and empathetic and want to want to have their loved ones, you know, come to the U.S. and we understand that. Uh, but they put their, their their folks in harm's way, and we are concerned that uh, even what used to be sort of um, uh, you know homegrown uh, migrant ventures are, are are getting exploited by these organizations, either to help them get there or even just to allow them to leave. And we see that in places like Haiti as well. Do you know if anyone has been captured um, from that particular voyage that landed Thursday? Well, there's an ongoing investigation, right? Some of those migrants did make it to shore. The majority of those were repatriated to Haiti. Uh, but when we do identify a potential smuggler, uh, we will typically bring those ashore. Homeland Security investigations will typically lead investigation into that. And we've had a number of those cases over the last year. So if you remember the last time I talked to you, we had increased our, our uh, operations back in August to deal with this gradual increase in, in the flow of migrants throughout the Caribbean. Yeah. And, and we are doing that again. So we are doing a surge within a surge. We're bringing all those resources to bear. Admiral Brendan McPherson, Coast Guard 7th District in Miami. Always great to have you. We so appreciate the information you bring to us. Yeah, thank you very much, Glenna. And next, the crisis heads to the classroom. South Florida schools from Miami-Dade to Broward are opening doors to the children arriving on those vessels. Miami-Dade superintendent is with us next.
focused on a crisis of migrants at the coast, onshore and in classrooms. A steady and growing increase in their numbers has the attention of the districts where the mission is to not ask, just support, just educate. Miami-Dade School Superintendent Jose Dotris is with us today via Zoom. Superintendent, always great to see you. I know you can't see us, but we can see you and we really appreciate your time on this Sunday morning. Thank you, Glenna. Always a pleasure to be here with you. Thanks. So you update, you and your team, I should say, updated the board on specifically this exact uh, issue today. I watched a little bit of that committee meeting and your words, you are seeing an impact. Frame that impact for us. What are you seeing? Sure. And the board, uh, of course, is always concerned about our registration number, especially anything that is impacting our schools. Uh, especially as a result of newcomers now. So our board chair started the conversation and making sure that we were doing what's right for students. Um, as you know, we dealt with uh, several waves of immigrants uh, into our school district. I myself was one of them years and years and years ago. Uh, and so we are seeing an impact in particular, one particular group of students that are coming from Cuba. We have seen an increase since October. And really what we look at in terms of an impact is at the end of the day, students that are coming from other countries, foreign born, will be impacting certain schools more than others. So our primary interest is to make sure that we have a pulse on which schools are receiving most of these new students. And incredibly enough, what the trend is showing, what the pattern is showing, is that the, the arrivals from Cuba are the ones that are populating the most in certain areas. However, not yet in terms of a crisis. We have what we call a student influx model, and there are three prongs to it. The first one is called the trickle in. That means students are trickling in but they impact different schools differently. Interestingly enough, we're seeing a greater impact on the middle and high school levels. And there is an, a concentrated number of students uh, that are impacting or are entering our schools in Hialeah. However, they are coming in across the school district. All right, let me, can I just stop you here? Because you're, uh, my mind is coming up with a lot of questions every time you say a sentence, and I don't want to get too far gone before we drill down <laughs> into some of those. Sure. So, the let, well, let's just start. The, the number of children in middle and high school, and particularly in Hialeah, sort of makes you think that, well, these people are coming and staying with families, and they have sponsors, and so they're going to go to the neighborhoods where a lot of possibly the newer Cuban arrivals and, and families live. Is that a valid assumption? That is a valid assumption, but it is not excluded there. We are seeing other schools that are changing even uh, demographically because of new arrivals arriving to those schools as well. Explain that a little bit. Where and how? For instance, I visited um, the other day, I was at Broadmoor. I went to Comstock Elementary and they are seeing um, an increase of foreign-born students, Spanish-speaking, uh, English-language learners in larger numbers than they have in the past. So uh, there is an adjustment, right, of making sure that these schools 
that are receiving students that have will have English as a second language. They don't they they're learning English upon their arrival. We have to make sure that we provide the added supports that those schools might have not had in the past. Understood. And you know what? Um, we have been reporting in the past couple of weeks, especially of the number of landings spiking in Monroe County in the Keys. I don't have the numbers. They are requested. I don't have the numbers from Monroe County School District yet. I did get numbers from your district and from Broward School District. And in both, there is a steady uptick month by month in foreign-born student registration. And, and I'm, I'm interested to sort of follow when someone, when a group lands in Monroe County in the Keys, do they, they don't apparently stay there. They might gravitate, they might find more affordable housing outside the Keys, so these families are not necessarily staying there. Absolutely. And uh, they may be going, coming to us or coming to other districts, and we're seeing that uh, here within our own, uh, our own county. That's why I'm saying that some of these families are seeking um, resident or housing in the most affordable communities possible. And of course, many of them are residing with their own family members. I mean, that was my case as a child of five years old when I came here from Miami. But yeah. of course, we're seeking the support and the assistance of the federal government since immigration is predominantly an area of responsibilities for them. You know, as you know, we have multiple issues here in our own community, right? Even homelessness, uh, the issue with affordable housing, that now this uh, is part of the mix of the formula as well. But we as a school district, we're ready, we're prepared to support and make sure that the transition of these uh, newcomers are as seamless as possible. We have counselors, we have folks that are very much uh, used to uh, receiving uh, foreign immigrants into our school district. It happens throughout the entire year, but yeah. right now, as I'm saying, since October, we have noticed an uptick, particularly in Cuban-born uh, students that are coming into our schools, middle school and high schools, for whatever reason, uh, impacted more than the elementary levels. And I imagine after especially arriving by sea and that harrowing journey, there is some some sense of trauma also that they might bring to school with them as well. You mentioned that, that you're at the first of three tiers, the trickle phase. What are the other two tiers and wh what's the projection there? So the second phase would be what we would be typically doing is if we see a concentrated impact on certain schools in certain areas, that we may have to not necessarily be able to support students in those particular schools. We would probably uh, open up reception centers across our school district, maybe one in the north, one in the center, and one in the south. Uh, we're not there yet. We're not there yet because the numbers that we're seeing, uh, the schools are able to handle them. Uh, we're just being uh, very attentive to the additional supports that they need. Like you're saying, the social emotional, the counseling, making sure that we link up to our partners in our community that are also providing support for these students. Remember, we have to provide transportation, food service, um, additional supplies, even mobile devices, right? 
that we have to equip these students with. And then the third layer were, of course, would be if the influx becomes so, so significant, then, then we would have to centralize everything via one site. And of course, that would be in complete partnership with the federal government. And when we watch just in the past couple of years, public schools population lowering actually um, because students are either choosing private school or charters or for whatever reason. Does that, that's sort of an upside, it opens room for more? Is that, does that make sense? Yes, that's one of the reasons like, when we think about new students coming in, so if you look at the total pot of the change in uh, foreign born students globally, correct? We've had an increase of approximately 1,400 students last year to this year. However, do remember that we have students that graduate, students that withdraw. So there's an entry exit portion, but our enrollment after the last 18, 19 years is actually increasing for the very first time for multiple reasons, not only this, but there is room. Uh, we have schools that are now just because they're receiving larger number of students uh, does not mean that they cannot uh, hold them. In fact, their schools, we have availability in many schools for additional arrivals. So arrivals. The issue is making sure that we provide the support and that the district has their finger on where the students are going so that we can link up with our partners um, and be able to make sure that we provide the appropriate supports. Uh, this Super is costly as well, right? Oh, wait, I knew we'd get to those supports. numbers. <laughs> all right, so are you, um, I, just like in the 30 seconds we have left, I hate to cut you off when it comes to money, but um, what's the projection? Is this gonna be a, a, a federal ask? So we are working on calculating those costs. The last time we did, a cost analysis was in 2016, and I believe the cost was between 8.8 .8 million to 11. Right now, that's what we're doing. My team is actually calculating that uh, because it, it, may, it, it will come down to additional costs from the federal government as a result of the influx that we're receiving. But yeah. my team is uh, currently working on those numbers. And again, um, this increase since October uh, in particular, right? We've had an increase of about over 2,000 students coming from Cuba, uh, and of course the Venezuelan numbers, and so that's what we're trying to calculate at, at this point. Well, Superintendent, you know we will be hounding you probably daily for the next couple of weeks. Sorry, not sorry. Um, thank you so much. Um, we, we just so appreciate your time this morning, and we'll talk soon. It'll always be a collective effort. Thank you so very, very much. Thanks. All right, up next, the Biden administration's new plan, a mixed message to countless Haitian migrants, some of whom were smuggled to shore this week. We've mentioned we zero in on that angle next. president's new immigration plan as carrot and stick. 30,000 new openings a month for Haitians, Cubans, Nicaraguans to apply for parole, but also 
who come outside legal channels, they are automatically expelled and then barred from trying again for a time. That plan drew immediate backlash from those who work to support and assist people escaping violence and poverty in Haiti. Paul Namfi is the lead political organizer at Family Action Network Movement. That's based in Miami's Little Haiti, a center of support services for South Florida's Haitian families. Paul, good to see you again. The pleasure is mine. It's great to be on the program today. So we were at your office the day the president announced his new plan and the Haitian families that you serve, they feel like they have been sort of given a whole set of different rules up until that day. Has that changed? Well, as you mentioned in, in the intro, we are looking at a question of, of, of carrot and stick. And the announcement that was made uh, last week, really, we believe that it has uh, advantages. It opens doors for people to apply for loved ones uh, inside Haiti who are, who are seeking to flee very, very dire conditions. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the border closings we feel are extremely, extremely problematic. Uh, we know that uh, basically uh, U.S. domestic law as well as uh, treaties and, and conventions signed at the international uh, realm protect uh, asking for asylum and protection uh, at international borders of nation states. So that aspect is very problematic and, and we feel uh, needs to continue. Uh, we need to continue to advocate for for respecting people's rights. Well, let me let me ask you, um, just like current events, this is a live show and, and it's happening right now. And you just heard the Coast Guard Admiral, if you did listen to the segment, um, we heard the Coast Guard Admiral saying that the vast majority of those who were on that sailboat that landed Thursday in Virginia Key Beach, those were uh, what we know, Haitian nationals, the vast majority have been returned already. What do you make of that? that that's part of the plan. That's the plan and operation. We are critiquing that uh, because uh, it's not just us that's saying this. Uh, we have people like Senator Bob Menendez of, of, of New Jersey, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, who leads that committee, uh, who, has, who has spoken out against uh, many of these forced repatriations, uh, as well as the fact that uh, we have the United Nations. We have Filippo Grandi, we have Volker Turk, uh, the special commissioner for human rights and for refugees have specifically asked uh, for Haitians not to be repatriated by other uh, member nation states, uh, given the situations inside Haiti and that the provisions of asylum and protection should also extend to people who are trying to leave Haiti who should not be forcibly repatriated. And that is our position of the Family Action Network movement as well. And what has to happen legally and in Congress for that to come come to terms? Well, this is a, an administrative decision. This is an executive decision about uh, how they are handling um, refugees who are leaving not just Haiti, but as you know, Cuba and other nations, uh, whether it's trying to cross the, the, the land border between Mexico and U.S., whether it's trying to arrive here by boat. And we, we feel very, very strongly that it is up to the administration to uh, move in the right direction on that. We are uh, saluting some of the positive decisions that have been taken, such as re redesignated Haiti for TPS, which is uh, was announced last December 5th, which we had a press conference the next day. We also were uh, positive on the question of the opportunities of the news, this new program, although it has real limits in terms of people's income, in terms of people's access to the Internet, in terms of who can apply and who is in a position to, to apply uh, for this new program. But the flip side of that is that these forced repatriations 
we are against them. We and we believe that the administration has to take a, a position. I think you mentioned the, the Congress. The, the most of our congressional advocacy is toward you know long-term solutions for people who have been here for many decades who don't have permanent status. But the administration has the the responsibility, as I mentioned to you uh, uh, last week uh, on the day of the announcement, if Haitians are repatriated back to Haiti, anything that happens to them while they are in Haiti or anything that happens to them while they were trying to, to return uh, under very perilous conditions is on the entity that, that sent them back to Haiti or to their country of origin, because this is a, a cruel policy. How, how problematic is it that part of this plan, um, it, it's on the internet. It encourages people to go on the internet or an app to apply for asylum and then wait in their home country for that process, for that appointment. And, and also they need a sponsor. They need to have financial support and the ability to stay here as not a quote unquote burden on government. How problematic is that? You, 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 you nailed one of the main issues uh, of our advocacy right now. And again, that was part of Senator Menendez's position is that this is not uh, easy or convenient for large, large numbers of people. There is a, a intersection between people who are politically disenfranchised and people who are economically and logistically disenfranchised. Uh, and many of the people who should be the priority of these programs are the people who have the most difficulty to apply for them. So I, I cannot get into the calculus of the decision making of people who are trying to come to the U.S. and how the means that they are using to do so. But we do very strongly believe uh, that uh, they make these decisions often for rational reasons. They also make these decisions sometimes based on incomplete or imperfect information that they receive. And so the word has to get out. Uh, part of our um, part of our advocacy and, and outreach to our communities inside the U.S. and outside of the U.S., whether we agree with these positions of the administration or not, it's at least to inform people what the landscape is uh, so that they can make in, informed decisions. But many of the people who are trying to come are likely in a situation where it is not uh, feasible for them to apply for this new, new program. And we understand that the part of the calculus of the program in terms of of orienting people to try to come to the U.S. one way versus another. But we believe that there does need to be consideration made to those yeah. who are trying to come in whatever way is feasible to them to apply for protection uh, or asylum. And, and it's very important for us to say also that we do not believe in the paradigm of illegal immigrants. We believe that there are people, some of them have documents, some of them do not. And that is the framework that we uh, always approach that issue with. Understood. Paul Namfi from the Florida Action Network. I know it used to be a Haitian name. I don't remember what the it, American... It goes from, <laughs> from Fomai Senamiami. Yes, the, that's how we knew it. We have grown it to the Family Action Network movement. Movement. And crossing a border and asking for asylum or protection is not is never an illegal act. And we appreciate your advocacy work and for being with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, next, significant new rules for those from Cuba headed to South Florida create a significant shift after decades of special welcome. And we take that dive when we come back.
first week of the new immigration plan, according to the Biden administration, hundreds of Cubans, Haitians, Nicaraguans, and Venezuelans have applied, have been vetted, and approved to fly into the United States. And at the same time, an unprecedented number of Cuban arrivals have been automatically turned around, though for decades they've had unique rights as refugees from political persecution. Willie Allen is a veteran South Florida immigration attorney dealing with all of this firsthand. Willie, so nice to have you today. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. So, Willie, this is a seismic change for Cuban migrants to be automatically expelled. And yet the Cuban Adjustment Act is still in effect. How does, how does that work? Well, look, uh, in the last 15 months of December 2022, we had uh, nearly 300,000 Cubans come into the border that were allowed to come in either with a parole or 228 or some other kind of documentation, and that the road would allow them to get legalized in the United States. Right now, I look at the parole program as a great opportunity for nearly 130,000 people to come in illegally to the United States. And why 130? If you divide the 30,000 paroles per month uh, equally between the four countries, 7,500 Cubans will get it, 90,000 per year, we still have 20,000 family unification paroles available for Cuba and 20,000 Department, Department of State visas where people come in as U.S. residents. And how does that change from <coughs> what we've seen over the years, people coming without any of that documentation and who have family here, who have sponsors here and given the opportunity to stay? How does that change? What are the, how, what's the change in those numbers? Well, I think it's going to be a reduction in numbers somehow because of the significant increase in people leaving Cuba in the last two years. Right now, Cuba, like Haiti, are pretty much failed countries. Uh, I don't know which one is in a worse situation. I would tell you that both are really dire situations for the people living there. And from the government to everyday life. And so what you have is that from Cuba, you had a significant number of people leave, especially young people. Uh, you were talking about the school system before. You do have some family groups coming into the border. You have had some young children come in by boat, but it's a significant migration now, uh, but it, and it's significantly expensive migration. When you leave from Cuba to Nicaragua to, to the Mexican border, people are being charged upwards of $20,000 per person when you leave by boat, and I have to believe that most folks that touch ground by boat are being trafficked by human traffickers are paying between eight to $10,000 per person. So when you now have a program, which is free, uh, all you need to do is have a sponsor in the United States, and most Cubans have family members here who are able to be sponsored, or close family friends who are able to be sponsored, and it doesn't cost anything, and you're able to come in and have a family member look after you Will help you out uh, when you come in with a parole uh, you can immediately apply for a work permit luckily for cubans which is different for from haitians venezuelans and nicaraguans the cuban adjustment act like you just mentioned continues to be in effect so these two-year paroles so let's let's just can let's just uh, sort of talk about what that means a cuban adjustment adjustment act part of it means that when a cuban national is in the united states for what was it one year and one day one year and a day then they are able to start the process to become a citizen. A, a resident. A so, resident, excuse me, yes, resident. So what happens is they're in a better situation than the other three countries because it's unclear 
what's going to happen after two years with the parole for Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Haiti. For my clients from those countries, I will probably apply for asylum. But for the Cubans, I can apply for adjustment of status. It's a great benefit. So when you look at it like that, for me, it is an opportunity for people to come in legally. And I support some type of legal migration in the United States. You cannot have 300,000 people come to the border from one country in 15 months without having some kind of difficulties. Yeah. So I, I, I support the legal migration, especially for Cubans as a benefit, because they will be able to adjust status after a year a day. Well, let me ask you this. Um, specifically, this is sort of framed from the southern border and preventing people without documentation, without going through the legal process, are automatically expelled. Does this not, in a way, almost encourage people to come by sea, make that horrific, dangerous, well, risky trip by question. sea? That's a very good question. Now, almost every raptor that I've represented since November, when they touch ground, they're issued a order of deportation, expedited order of removal, which eliminates our ability to ever adjust to the Human Adjustment Act, puts them in a situation where they immediately have to apply for asylum. And obtaining asylum in the United States is not an easy road for any country. I will probably tell you that maybe upwards of 70% of Cubans who have to apply for asylum are going to lose because they don't have the evidence for the of persecution because of their political opinion, race, nationality, or part of a special a social group. So when uh, obtaining asylum in the United States is a very difficult road. So the people who touch ground right now, they there's no dry foot, wet foot, so they would be in a very precarious situation. Now, through the Mexican border, they cannot return back everybody that seeks uh, entry. And you still have several thousand Cubans being allowed every month. Isn't it ironic that Title 42, which this government has tried to eliminate, is the one being used now to return Haitians, Venezuelans, Nicaraguans, and Cubans? Yeah, and that's, that's almost begrudgingly. That's begrudgingly as the courts decide whether that stays or goes. But Willie Allen, we got to go, and I just wanted to thank you so much. We will absolutely keep in touch with you as this evolving process keeps going. Appreciate your time. Well, thank you for inviting me. Have a great day. Okay, thanks. All right, up next, a look behind the headlines and the story behind the story in this week's Local 10 Reporter Debrief. Cody Weddle on tap. rules for Cubans, Haitians, and Nicaraguans are patterned after a relatively uh, new program for Venezuelan migrants meant to stop people from choosing to attempt illegal crossings. For our reporter debrief today, a Local 10 colleague with unique insights and context there, Cody Weddle has lived in and covered Venezuela as they struggled through catastrophic economic collapse and has been documenting the evolving immigration rules there. And it's so nice to have you at the Good desk. Good to be here. Good to be back. So these new rules, the, the Venezuelan migrants have been going through these rules since October? October or, or 18th. So this okay. was implemented for Venezuelans on October 18th. Are they working? Well, it depends on what the goal is. Um, if the goal is to reduce migration at the southern border, the Department of Homeland Security says that has reduced by uh, encounters with Venezuelans have reduced by 70 to 90 percent. Oh, wow. So, yes, it is working to reduce that. Remember, this is a public health policy, though. Title 42 right. exists 
for public health. So should we be judging the effectiveness of this policy based on encounters or based on public health? So that's an interesting question because it, that is the reason why they, why the administration deports people under under that right. Title 42. When that goes away, is this uh, new plan that is by executive order, is, is that a reason enough or do you need Title 42 to be the reason? Well, before Title 42, uh, Title 8 was used. It was a little bit more uh, formal. It, it's more of a process. Title 42 is is an immediate expulsion, uh, normally back into Mexico, especially for Venezuelans, because Venezuelans cannot be deported back to, to Venezuela because there's not a good relationship there between the U.S. Right. and Venezuela. So if Title 42 goes away, it goes back to Title, Title 8. That means that there would be much more processing. The process wouldn't be as quick um, as it has been with Title 42. That's always something so in flux. You did a report this week mm -hmm. that was so interesting about, because part of this is that people need sponsors right. and they need financial support. And you did a story uh, documenting at least one woman who sponsored nine people. Yes. And I, I'd love to hear more about who's stepping up to sponsor. And you know, family members are one thing, extended families, right. but our strangers are stepping up to sponsor people coming mm -hmm. into the country. That's astounding. I mean, that that is that is head and heart right there, all in. What Absolutely, have you found? this is this is a person who is active in the Venezuelan American community. She's been here since the '90s, I believe, and she just uh, she just felt compelled to help people, and she reached out to her contacts uh, via WhatsApp, social media, and she started finding people who needed sponsors, um, and it was relatively quick. So, in a larger sense, if um, you know, people are watching here, thinking they have the means and they have the heart for it. If you sponsor somebody desperate to be in the United States, what kind of responsibilities long term is that? Is that a contract? Mm -hmm. What happens if they can't anymore or change their mind? Um, that that's what is there a structure for that at all? Well, they do ask for your proof of income and you have to make above the, the poverty guidelines. When I've asked immigration attorneys about this, they don't really have an answer. They don't know uh, what happens if somebody comes here and something doesn't work out. Is that person now on the hook for the person they have sponsored? This is a new program. It was first started for Ukrainians last year. Um, so maybe we just don't have an answer. So Ukrainians have um, at the moment automatic, correct me if I'm wrong, automatic refugee status. That is not the case for people fleeing from South America or the Caribbean, is that right? I think that's correct. Um, uh, Venezuelans must go, go through this process um, and that's, that's how they can come here. The process was similar for Ukrainians, but I think there is a special status for them. You know, um, really quickly, you lived and worked in Venezuela till what, a couple of years ago? I was at the airport when you came home you were deported. About three years um, ago. Yeah. yeah, three years ago. And before that, they, they raided your home. They kicked yes. you out. Um, any blowback from that? Are you, are you good? <laughs> I'm good, yeah. <laughs> it's been three years ago. Um, I haven't had any other, any other issues with that. So, yeah, good. we're okay. good. Okay. Well, it's so much fun to have a little debrief. I know our viewers see you on Local 10, and, and the reporting that you do with so much depth and context from South America is really amazing. Good to be here. Thank you, sir. All right, um, up next, we will be right back.
forget the This Week in South Florida podcast. Scan that QR code with your phone and it takes you right to the This Week in South Florida section of local10.com. We thank you so much for being with us this hour. Remember, keep in touch.